ladies and gentlemen, my name is Tim Besley. I'm Professor of Economics here at the LSE and Director of the Suntory Toyota International Centers for Economics and Related Disciplines, or Stickard. Uh, tonight's actually a very important occasion for Stickard. It's part of a two-day event uh, to celebrate the role that Tony Atkinson, Mervyn King, and Nick Stern played in building a core program of research which persists to this day. Uh, their research program on taxation, incentives, and the distribution of income brought together a research program of, of huge importance with a very close link to policy. Uh, many researchers who are returning to the LSE uh, for this event cut their teeth as part of this program. And it was 25 years ago this year that Nick Stern arrived at LSE where Tony and Mervyn were already actively building the program. But his involvement in the program and the program itself predates his arrival here. Now the aim of this panel is to discuss uh, and in some ways to update the themes of the program and to use this as a basis for a discussion about the kind of economic analysis that we need to, to study important <coughs> economic problems. Uh, with the benefit of having seen changes in the world and in research in the intervening period. Tomorrow, we'll be holding uh, an invitation-only seminar uh, featuring presentations from Richard Blundell at uh, UCL, Thomas Piketty from the Paris School of Economics, and Jim Perturba from MIT. From MIT. Uh, that discussion, as well as the panel this evening, will, I'm sure, create a lasting impression on all of us. We're here this evening for a panel discussion featuring a really distinguished group of people who spent their lives applying economics to the study of important policy problems. Uh, we have such a great panel that there's no way my brief introductions will do justice to their achievements. Our first speaker will be Nick Stern, uh, better perhaps known as the Lord Stern of Brentford, uh, as well as being a distinguished uh, academic. Nick has served as chief economist of the EBRD and the World Bank and as head of the Government Economic Service. He was, of course, responsible for the enormously influential uh, report on climate change, the Stern Review. We're fortunate indeed that, we've, that he decided recently to return to LSE, uh, where he's now the IG Patel Professor. Now, Nick will make some opening remarks to which the panel will respond and add their own reflections and perspective. Um, I'll invite the panelists in reverse order alphabetically uh, to uh, respond to, to Nick. Uh, our first panelist will be Sir Nicholas McPherson. Uh, Nick is the Permanent Secretary at Her Majesty's Treasury, one of the most important and influential posts in the UK government. Uh, notably, he's been in this position throughout the global crisis and has played a first-hand role in all aspects of government policy. During his stellar career in the civil service, he has a huge amount of experience of putting economics to work. Uh, we'll then he hear from Professor Sir James Murleys. Jim is a Nobel laureate in economics and perhaps best known for his work on optimal taxation. He's held chairs uh, both at Oxford and Cambridge, although sadly never at the LSE. A hallmark of Jim's work has been a close link between economics and policy, and he recently chaired the Murleys Review, organized by the IFS, to review all aspects of the UK tax system, a review which is having an impact in debates about taxation both here and internationally. Our third respondent will be Professor Peter Diamond of MIT. He too is an expert on taxation and public policy and won the Nobel Prize in Economics in October last year. Peter's interests span a whole range of public policy issues with a string of highly influential books and papers. His joint work with Jim Murley's on optimal taxation helped to found the field. Uh, in fact, it's the first time that I've seen uh, Jim and Peter together on a panel and to any student of public economics, Diamond and Murley's trips off the tongue like, I suppose, Gilbert and Sullivan does for followers <laughs> of light opera. Although, of course, 
their work is much more serious. Uh, uh, finally, uh, we will hear from Professor Sir Tony Atkinson. Tony was, as I mentioned earlier, involved in Stickard's early development as the second chairman of Stickard. He's also a leading figure in public policy economics and is particularly well known for his work on income distribution. Tony has spent periods as a professor of economics at Essex, UCL, LSE in Cambridge. He was recently warden of Nuffield College in Oxford. I'm delighted to say that he's recently returned to the LSE as a centennial professor. So I'm sure, ladies and gentlemen, you'll agree that this is a truly exceptional panel. So let me invite Nick Stern to come to the podium to set the scene. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. Um, there is a danger here that it will be uh, old men reminiscing, and I did, I did want to look back to see why we started down the road that we started on in uh, the second half of the 1970s. Um, if I remember um, correctly, it was around 1977 when Tony... Uh, asked Mervyn and I to, let's say it was a beer, it might have been a cup of tea, but let's say to have a glass of beer uh, together and to discuss uh, a possible research program. We agreed enthusiastically and uh, the tidy program, Taxation, Incentives and Distribution of Income, started um, in 1978 and went on to the early 1990s. Um, now, what was the context uh, for all that? Well, part of the context is that we were good friends from Cambridge from the uh, late 1960s, and that shared friendship was a very important part of the whole story. But it was also shared values and uh, probably most importantly, a shared approach to the analysis of policy. That, if you like, or let me call, the um, public economics in the tradition of James Mead. Um, you can look outside this country for that tradition also. I don't want to be too UK-focused, but we were very influenced by James Mead. Um, he was here, and uh, we interacted with him, and he also, of course, influenced um, Jim and Peter and many of the others. So I'll call this the tradition of the shared background, the tradition of public economics, uh, a la James Mead. Now that was uh, something which looked first at uh, how markets function when they function reasonably well and then immediately asked the question what happens if they don't? And that's something which I think was of fundamental importance, is of fundamental importance to our thinking about economic policy. It's not the only starting point uh, and that's important but it's one of them and that's one I think which at that time in the so-called uh, new public economics or modern public economics, that was one that was shared. It was a little more particular than that because the program itself was taxation incentives and the distribution of income and that was very directly uh, based on the kinds of models that came to be known as Diamond and Merleys. Now what was the essence of that? Well the idea was that you influence people's behaviour through the prices and thus the taxes which they faced, that would have a direct effect on revenue, a direct effect on their welfare, and in particular an effect which varied according to how well off or badly off they were. So we called it taxation incentives and the distribution of income for those reasons. So that's actually quite a formal structure 
which looks at the situation of households, looks at how they respond to signals through their demand and supply. So it's a particular formal structure. So you've got the spirit of the median tradition, and then you've got the particularity of the Diamond and Murley's approach. And on top of that, and which is why uh, Tony invited us for this glass of beer, was, um, or glasses of beer, was the um, availability of the family expenditure survey. That was a very important trigger to our research and to the research of a number of others at the Institute for Fiscal Studies and uh, Richard Blundell and his group. We all started to respond to that opportunity. And it was a very important opportunity and a, an indication of how openness with data can influence what people do do and can do. But the last thing, I think if you look back from at least, this wasn't a direct motivation in the late 70s, but perhaps it became one. From the mid-80s, you had about 20 years of something which uh, you might call market fundamentalism. The idea that the best way to look at government policy was that governments always mess up, and the best thing that you can do is get governments out of everything as fast as you possibly can. Now, I exaggerate just a little bit, but that's a rather different perspective on policy than, say, the Diamond Murley story, which... I just told, or the policy in the tradition of James Mead. That was actually building up through the time that uh, we were working on um, the taxation incentives and distribution of income program, and it came to influence, I think, that zeitgeist, some of the things which we started to say. Now, we were, as I said, getting to work on this program before all that really kicked in, but it's um, occurrence, I think, and it's building during the time of the program was rather an important influence as well. I'm tempted to draw attention to the fact that Deng Xiaoping began his uh, fundamental programs of Chinese reforms about two years after Tony Merton and I had that glass of beer, but you have to be very careful with cause and effect on, uh, on these things. So that was the background. Um, by the mid-'80s, as uh, Tim mentioned, we were all together at the London School of Economics, Tony first, then Mervyn, then uh, myself. And I look back, was we, we were coming before, before that, um, Mervyn was a professor at Birmingham, I was a professor at Warwick, and we used to come here uh, as the basis, uh, well, first at the University College London, and then here as the basis of, um, the base for our research. Um, but those years when we were all together at the LSE, I look back as some of the intellectual, intellectually the happiest and uh, most creative uh, period um, uh, for, for I think all three of us it was a particularly important time I hope it wasn't the only important time for all three of us but it was a particularly important time for all three of us um, by the time we got to the end of the 1980s uh, uh, early 1990s we started to disperse T Tony disappeared off to Cambridge Mervyn went to be chief economist of the Bank of England uh, an institution which he's still in um, and you know what he does there and <laughs> And uh, uh, eventually I went off to the EBRD, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and the World Bank. But I think all three of us were profoundly influenced throughout the rest of what we did by that uh, collaboration. But suppose we got together for that glass of beer now. What sort of attitudes, oh, attitudes is the wrong word, what sort of approaches, um, questions, intuitions, techniques would we, would we try to bring to bear? I think the spirit 
of asking analytically and specifically through the various instruments at its disposal about the role of the state is a very important one. But we would no longer simply, I think, <clears throat> specify taxation. I think we'd think of public policy much more broadly than just uh, taxation. There's so much that counts, of course, in uh, public policy. Um, the whole range of the expenditure side through um, education and, and health, through the kinds of institutions and regulation you bring to bear and so on. So I think we would have pitched it much more broadly and thought about public policy more generally. Certainly, from my own point of view, um, since uh, I always was deeply interested in development, still am, and that's really what drives me, uh, I, would have, I would also now try to take a longer-term view of how public policy influences the circumstances of people. I mean, let me call it growth or growth and development, which is rather, again, much more broad than simply the idea of people responding through labour demand, through labour supply, commodity demand and so on, which was the sort of governing incentive question around um, the, tidy, the tidy project. So I think we would um, look at public policy more broadly, we'd look at the incentive story more broadly, and we'd think, I think we'd look at equity more broadly than we uh, did, rather more broadly than just the phrase, the distribution of income. I think we'd think hard about the distribution of opportunity. We'd look at a whole load of dimensions of well-being. I suspect that measuring happiness would be rather far down the list of all three of us. But well-being in the sense of what people can do through their education, through their, through their health, through their opportunities in labour markets and so on, through the opportunities for their families. I think we'd look at well-being uh, in that broader sense or a more multidimensional sense than just the distribution of income. But I do think that the story of what can governments do, given that people react in various ways and that people in different circumstances are affected in different ways, that story, if you like, and that together with the problems of imperfections in markets, I think is a very important way of starting what we do when we inquire about public policy. As I emphasise, not the only way, but I think it's a very important way, and I think we would... Uh, still, as it were, in many ways be driven by the same kind of motivation. And I do think that the period of collective amnesia about public economics, which the economics and policy world suffered to some extent during the 1990s, did turn out to uh, cause us real damage. Forgetting about market uh, imperfections, forgetting about the importance of regulation, whether you look at uh, climate change, if you forgive me for mentioning it only once, and uh, if you look at what's happened in the financial markets over the last five or six years, I think the story of looking at policy from the point of view of what goes wrong with markets is a very productive and important way of looking at things. And to look at it through the structure of government instruments, people's reactions, and the distribution of well-being is a very valuable way of looking at it. And uh, I'll probably say something over dinner tonight in a uh, more private way about um, what happens when you forget doing that kind of, you forget about that kind of approach, if you like, the evidence-based approach to policy when you try to make policy in practice, uh, with hypothetical countries, of, of course. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you.
So our next uh, speaker is uh, Nick McPherson. Tim, uh, thank you very much. And um, I'm, I'm the sort of fraudulent member of the panel. Um, first, uh, I'm, I failed to go to the LSE, but secondly, you know, I am the only uh, non-academic. Non and um, having said that, um, I started uh, as an economic practitioner in the early 80s, and um, it's a huge privilege to be here tonight, since in those days, you know, there were just a number of, you know, key texts which you read, the famous uh, Mervyn King on tax, I was a microeconomist, and uh, Kay and King uh, informed uh, much of what I did. But the other great texts um, on uh, poverty, which uh, indeed, having failed to go to the LSE, I went to UCL for my master's degree, only to find that Tony had just left. And that was the main reason I'd gone there. And in fact, the whole year I was there, I seem to remember there was no professor of economics because he was such a hard act to replace. And Nick, who has, um, who uh, e even at that time uh, I was an avid reader of, but latterly uh, it was a great privilege to work alongside him at the Treasury where he had a huge um, influence. And um, indeed, even now, um, much of the ideas which he uh, visualized when he was at the Treasury are only just being put into practice. And um, I would highlight this spending round. Nick and I always had this view that if only you could just rank every single capital project by its economic and social return, this would uh, result in better decision making. And it is, um, you know, not, not everybody would give George Osborne, I suspect, not everybody in this room, I suspect, would give George Osborne maximum credit for everything he's done. But actually, here was a chance the Exchequer who accepted this principle that you could rank projects. And indeed, uh, you know, when the inevitable Treasury uh, guillotine because uh, came down and resources were rationed at that point, those projects which had the highest returns were financed and the ones below the line were not. So uh, economics can make a difference. I suspect um, my other crime on this panel is probably I come as close to uh, uh, the market fundamentalist, uh, which uh, Nick, uh, whom Nick uh, uh, quite rightly rails against. But markets do matter, and the Treasury, I think, of any uh, institution uh, in government, and for these purposes I count the Bank of England, consistent with its independence, even though, much to Mervyn's irritation, it is now classified as part of the public sector, um, uh, I don't recognise it as part of government. So the Treasury is kind of on its own. Occasionally you and I get together uh, with Mervyn and we, we, we share the pain. But um, the Treasury within government, I think, has always been uh, the greatest exponent of markets. And uh, I think that's important because, um, you know, markets do allocate resources generally in an efficient matter, manner. But where public economics really kicks in is where market failure takes place and judgments have to be made uh, by the state about how resources are going to be allocated. I mean, tax obviously is um, perhaps the greatest expression 
of the role of the state. And um, it's, it's an area where incentives have always mattered most. You only have to go through the history of 18th century taxation to realise that taxes um, come and go, uh, window tax being one of the, the great successes of those times, but also you know, wig, wig taxes, wig powder taxes, glove taxes, and you could be sure that whatever you taxed, uh, fashions changed and the base moved on. And, um, but it's not just tax. I think um, in recent years, and Nick was a, a very positive influence on that, but also Tony and Mervyn uh, in, in, in earlier times, um, there are really critical issues around the welfare system and the incentives within that uh, and the way the tax and benefit system interacts. And um, you know, yet again, government is, uh, has set its sight on the holy grail of a better benefit system with the so-called universal credit. And um, it may be that having had my fingers very badly burnt by the tax credit system uh, under at the beginning of the previous government, that um, uh, I, I'm encouraging Treasury officials to uh, ensure that a bit of traditional Treasury scepticism is uh, brought to the party on the universal credit. But nevertheless, um, these uh, developments in uh, welfare do reflect extensive analytical and theoretical thinking uh, carried out um, uh, not just by um, the eminent people on the platform but uh, people today, younger people who are working in the universities. And um, I would just like to make a real pitch as you know, the non-academic here, the policy maker, of how important um, uh, the universities are for generating uh, ideas and moving the policy debate forward. And I suppose I would just like to end really by just identifying um, some areas where I think that's going to be really important in the coming time. I mean, first, um, and again, with, with Nick present, this is very relevant. I do think uh, the whole issues of um, uh, the economics of the environment and climate change are going to be absolutely critical. You know, if you pitch government intervention in the wrong place, it can cause either huge damage to the environment or to the economy. There has to be an optimal uh, form of intervention, and I think economists have a critical role there. Another area which I think um, is we really need to push forward the frontier of thinking is the whole issue of uh, the, the sort of public economics of the financial system. I mean, needs to say, some of us have been rather more scarred uh, by the deficiencies of the financial system than others. But this is something which has uh, concentrated a lot of the Treasury's uh, resources and efforts in recent years. And I think um, if ever there was an area which, um, where we could get a better fix on the limits of the market in terms of an efficient allocation of resources, it is the financial system. And the final uh, pitch I'd like to make, which is perhaps slightly perverse with so many micro-economists on the platform, but I think all of you in your separate ways have in, from time to time strayed into the area of macroeconomics. Um, 
in recent years, the world has been going through a massive uh, experiment in macroeconomic policy. There's, this is the time to be doing a PhD thesis in uh, you know, what worked and what didn't. And obviously, for many years to come, that debate will play itself out. But I would really encourage those from a younger generation in this room to make your name in that space, since certainly sitting in the Treasury trying to uh, make sense of current conditions, we certainly need all the help we can get. Thank you. So our next speaker will be Jim Merlis. Any chance to celebrate this great trio is, uh, is very good. I'm extremely happy to be here. At, uh, well, I wasn't so happy when they all came here, since I would rather have had them in my own university, wherever that, that happened to be. But uh, it, it was a, a fine example of, uh, of great atoms turning into great molecules. Uh, and they, they, they did a lot of stuff. I, I was wondering what I thought was uh, particularly special about the, the, the way they went about these public policy issues. Uh, and uh, I, I think, you, you may not think this, but uh, by my standards, I, I think they kept their feet on the ground very well and uh, m managed to avoid getting silly conclusions, uh, things that, that weren't uh, uh, supported by any decent empirical stuff. They really brought numbers, observations, into thinking about uh, public policy. Uh, I mean, of, co of course, you can see probably the, the aspect of, of this that you know most about would be uh, uh, John Kay and Mervyn King's book, which talks about the British tax system and uh, in a way that uh, I think very beautifully blends theoretical understanding with, uh, w with a, a real sense of the way things actually are. Uh, and you get just the, the same kind of thing in any of Tony's books or, or in, in Nick's work. Uh, see this coming out. Well, I think it comes out very much in the, the stuff on global warming. Oh, so what I thought I'd do was be a bit eccentric and actually illustrate to you how it is that if you're uh, a, a purer academic, shall we say, and in this context that's not uh, necessarily what you want to be, uh, how you can get led into things that uh, don't look very sensible. And yet maybe I, I'm simulated here by a whole bunch of thoughts, uh, but uh, I, I'm going to pick two of them out. One is that uh, they, they always took issues of inequality and distribution very seriously, uh, uh, which is, is very true of the whole tradition that uh, Nick was talking about in his, uh, his initial remarks. Uh, but an another very different thought is that uh, perhaps in, on the theory side, we have 
never taken sufficiently seriously the possibility that optimal prices might sometimes be zero. Uh, and uh, you'll see what I mean because I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit of concrete theory that uh, leads to that conclusion. Uh, notice I said optimal prices. I know this stuff's called optimal taxation, but really it's optimal prices. And I think it's quite important to understand that. Uh, let me get down to specifics. Uh, the particular model that I, uh, a lot of people have worked with it, so I'll call it a kind of standard income tax model, uh, as, as you know, has people who uh, choose to work and choose to consume and they, they have trade-offs and, uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, we, we think very much about incentives. Uh, the, the issue is how are you going to apply this to get some decent re results on how much redistribution there should be? Now you'll think this has got nothing to do with uh, coming up with zero prices. but. Uh, Anyway, I, I decided there was one assumption that we'd all been making that we probably shouldn't make. Uh, and uh, the, 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 the trio certainly have always made it. And that was that uh, no matter how little work you think of people doing, they'd really rather be doing less. That's not true of any of you here. So why would, you, why would you want to assume that in, uh, in a model? But anyway, as you know, the standard economic models do, do assume this uh, almost universally. Uh, uh, because, uh, like many people, I was very interested in tax credit systems and uh, combining taxes and, uh, and benefits and regarding them as, as one system of redistribution. I want to, to know what would be the implications for redistribution if you assumed that uh, people's preferences were actually to do a, at least a certain amount of work. And I think there are all kinds of reasons, including uh, our evidence on what makes people happy, which, of course, I wasn't supposed to, to, to mention, uh, that, uh, that, that suggests that I, I don't know to what particular level but I, I hope that perhaps somebody could tell me uh, to what particular numerical level, how many hours a week do people actually like to work. I know it varies greatly with the kind of job you're doing and I'm sure there are some people uh, who uh, are actually in jobs where they'd, they'd rather not do any. But that I, all I needed for this modeling was that uh, quite a lot of people were doing the kind of job where you would certainly, even if you weren't paid for it, you see where the zero price is coming in, that you would still want to do some work. Uh, and, and then the question is what, well, I'm going to jump straight to the result. We've got a theorem. And, uh, Nick in his presidential address to the EEA was saying you should always have a theorem when you give a talk. Uh, and Well, he, he only said for presidents, so I'm going to generalize. And, um, the, the theorem is that uh, with a particular assumption about the distribution of capabilities, abilities, uh, wages, if you like, uh, in the population, but not actually a terribly demanding uh, assumption, it's always true that the 
marginal rate of income tax at the lowest incomes should be zero, should be 100%, sorry. I'm going for the zero price, you understand. Uh, that's saying that on the margin, the price you get for working should be uh, zero, up to some level. Uh, I'm not saying anything asymptotic. I'm not just saying that at the very lowest level it should be zero, but uh, according to this model, it uh, should be uh, a zero price up to some finite uh, level of income. Uh, now, the point of this example, obviously I'm not going to go on and on about it, at least one of the points of this kind of example, quite apart from whether uh, it, it's, it's plausible and makes sense when you to bring in a, a lot of the very interesting empirical stuff that we now know about uh, people's labor supply. Uh, but one issue is that if you did have a, a zero price in that market, the market wouldn't work, would it? I really don't see how you uh, are going to have labor markets for people at these low income levels, I mean, uh, unskilled workers, where the, the marginal wage is actually zero uh, to them. It, it's, it's hard to see how the way that we think that um, uh, employers might attract workers uh, when they're shortage by increasing the wage that they're prepared to pay would work under these circumstances. So uh, uh, the, the main reason I was bringing this up was saying, look, even in the standard models, if you do the academic thing of pursuing the question where it goes and doing apparently what is right by bringing in must be more realistic assumptions, that uh, you do run into great trouble because it turns out there are ways that markets don't work for, and situations in which they're not going to work uh, for reasons quite different from anything that we've got in the micro models or for that matter in the macro models. But of course you'll also realize in the context I'm talking about that uh, you, you're going to start thinking very much about the macro causes of unemployment uh, when you start thinking about it this world and wonder whether that might make a difference. Well, I just wanted to take this, I, I have a whole bunch of examples in mind about where you, you end up in a very funny place when you do this. But uh, maybe, maybe there is a lesson here that uh, we can do more redistribution, we can equalize people's incomes rather more than uh, people currently uh, uh, think. So, uh, our next speaker will be Peter Diamond. First, let me say I don't have a theorem. I mean, if any of you want to get up and walk out, I'll, I'll understand it. Uh, I've known and admired the work of Tony and Mervyn and Nick for a very long time. I've been trying to remember how long. Uh, Mervyn is the one I've known least long, and we figured out on the way here. We started interacting in 72 when he showed up at St. John's. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, I met at a conference in 70. And Tony, can I 
say I tutored Tony when he was an undergraduate at Churchill and I was visiting. Uh, very well too, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when I say uh, I've known and admired them for a long time, I really mean a long time. <laughs> and seriously admired. I mean, I read things written by each of them on a regular basis uh, and that continues to date. And the U.S., of course, U.S. academics, U.S. non-academics are a very in-looking group. Stickard and this trio has been an exception. The U.S. public finance community has followed very closely what was being done here uh, and learning a lot from it. So on behalf of a large country across the Atlantic, let me thank you. Nick, um, in the presidential address, and he may or may not have said it here, talked about the influence of what was happening generally in the political world on what was happening in the academic economic world. I want to complement that, not to disagree with it, by talking about what was going on inside the economics profession from the three major crises we have had in the way we do economics. The first was the stagflation of the 70s. The second was learning how hard it was to actually get a market economy functioning well after the fall of communism. And the third, no surprise, is the Great Recession that's happened. So let me take each of those uh, and say a little bit uh, about them. Obviously, the stagflation totally killed the simple, naive Phillips curve that had been a centerpiece of analysis. What's interesting is if you go back and read the Samuelson Solo paper uh, that really put that on the agenda, all of the caveats on why you shouldn't think of it as a policy alternative are there in the paper. But there are many papers where what the profession takes away is quite different from the thrust of the paper as a whole. Uh, my favorite example of that is, is the Coase theorem. Go read the paper. The theorem is a throwaway introduction before getting into the real issue, which is how do you deal with transactions costs. So a theorem that had none didn't interest Coase in the writing of the paper. I don't know. I've never met the man. It may have interested him afterwards, uh, but uh, um, in terms of, of page allocation, it was all about dealing with the reality of transactions costs. Same thing with Samuelson and Solo. So that got killed and, and two things came out of that. The good thing that came out of that was a much more serious focus on the formation of expectations and the role of expectations in the kinds of things Mervyn worries about. What kind of continuity and in inflation, how hard do you have to hit it and when. A lot of this is around expectations and that suddenly became much more central for the analysis of macroeconomists who stayed within extending the tradition that had been there before. 
The second thing that came out of that, uh, identified most closely with Lucas and Prescott, uh, was the idea of two things. One, moving into real models and having nominal things disappear. And boy, they have disappeared. Uh, Jim Paterba, who is here and will be active tomorrow, and I have been teaching public finance together for a long time. When I started studying public finance, being taught by Carrie Brown from Musgrave's textbook, Musgrave had three separate budgets for allocation, distribution, and stabilization. I suspect you'd have to look a long way back to find stabilization showing up at all in a public finance class. Alan Auerbach has, has looked at built-in stabilizers. These are terribly important, but somehow they haven't caught the intellectual fancy of how to do work that will get you tenure, for example. Uh, similarly, uh, to get caddy, stabilization doesn't appear much in mo most of mainline macroeconomics either. Because the second aspect of the revolution beyond going to real was focusing on markets that clear. And in his presidential address, uh, Nick criticized these models. And I want to put forth a different criticism. Uh, his criticism was about the modeling. He quoted Bob Solo. I share the worship of Bob Solo with Nick. And I think everything Bob said uh, about what was wrong with that revolution was absolutely right and had absolutely no effect on the profession. And there is perhaps uh, a reason for that that makes some sense, which, and now I'm going to shift into methodology. When I was a young researcher, I thought nobody needed to think about methodology because it was obvious what was the right thing to do. And methodology is done by old people when they can't find anything better to do. Well, now it's age appropriate. <laughs> and the element here is that a model is, by definition, an incomplete picture of reality. That means a model can be good for one purpose and really rotten for other purposes. And in a sense, it's wrong to criticize a theoretical model unless it has no conceivable use whatsoever. And I think the strain of research that's come out of that Lucas and Prescott start has uses. It has uses in looking at the general equilibrium dimensions of what's going on. You do something, how does it play out in different sectors? Elements like that, I think there are uses there. The criticism really is about some of the uses. So you've got to ask the question, particularly when you draw a policy inference from a model, you have to ask the question, am I getting my answers from the parts of the model that I believe are pretty accurate, and the things I've left out to make the model tractable don't really upset the answers. The answers are robust. Or am I getting my answers from something that I think doesn't make any sense? From this perspective, thinking about unemployment policy during the Great Recession, or the Great Depression for that matter, in a model that has labor markets that clear is just obviously going the wrong way. It's not the right use of the model. 
So Prescott looks at the Great Depression and tries to figure out uh, why workers didn't want to work when productivity was so high. And in the Journal of Economic Perspectives Symposium on the Crisis, uh, we see uh, O'Hanion doing the same thing. What's happened? Productivity is high, but workers aren't working. Uh, somehow that's gone wrong. The search theory models of the labor market have now been inserted in uh, some of these real business cycle models, but that doesn't really capture the issue because the models are then closed with a Valrhasian output market and sometimes even further with infinite horizon budget constraints. As if the fact that firms have trouble selling their stuff to people who have trouble getting enough income to buy it is not the heart of the problem. And so I think the, the hope uh, I have coming out of this crisis, it may be horrible for the world, but it's wonderful for academics. I share uh, Nick McPherson's view, and this is a great time to be a graduate student. Uh, they uh, may make a change. Let me just say quickly, the second revolution has led to a lot of studies of institutions and the important roles they play in differential efficiencies across different economies. And I haven't found anything that was really bad coming out of that. Uh, and I've seen quite a bit uh, that was good. What are we going to learn out of the current crisis? Well, already there are people who say there's nothing to learn. The old models are just fine. Uh, I think that's going to be hard to maintain as an ongoing basis because we're back to the issue of the uses of the models. So I'm hopeful that a much more realistic picture of what markets can do and what markets can't do will come forward. Back when Nick Stern was at the World Bank, I heard him give a talk. I was down there for a conference. And he said, what the world needs is more good regulations and fewer bad regulations. Now, it is profound stuff, exactly, <laughs> exactly, because what is the p political battle? Uh, it's too long to fit on a bumper sticker. The political battle is more regulations or fewer regulations, more spending or less spending, whereas what we need is more spending on some things and less spending on other things. And so the role of the academics, it seems to me, is to try to get some sense into how this battle between more or less plays out in the real underlying issue of trying to do better, trying to recognize that markets doing things not so well go beyond, I think that's really what we've learned from this crisis, go beyond the list we were all familiar with from the theorem of what it would take for markets to get everything right, and then we've got a list of things that we can correct, Pigouvian taxes and what have you. Uh, I think we've recognized now, particularly in the dynamics of things that happen quickly for some people but slowly for others, that there are more problems with markets than we had previously recognized, and that will keep me busy for a while. Thank you.
And uh, uh, final speaker is Tony Atkinson. Thank you very much. Um, what Tim didn't say at the beginning was that I'm actually a, a substitute. So uh, for those of you who came here uh, expecting to see Professor Anne Harding or Professor Martin Feldstein, I'm sorry, I'm not either of those people. But uh, in thinking about my role as a substitute, um, I consoled myself with the thought that in football, uh, there are a number of very well-known players uh, who specialize in coming on as substitutes. <laughs> so if you think about David Fairclough, for example, for those of you a certain age, remember? Or, yes, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer of Manchester United, who scored a memorable goal, coming on a few minutes before. So there's a role for substitutes. But my consolation was not quite complete when I discovered from the Super, said, Super Sub website a statement that they're the kind of player a manager could rely upon, but who would struggle to play a full game week in, week out. <laughs> so I'm going to struggle uh, to say something about the analysis of public policy uh, in terms of what I shall call the the vertical and horizontal integration. Now, what do I mean by that? In industrial economics, vertical integration means that uh, a firm follows something right through from the inputs right through to selling the goods to the consumer. That's now unfashionable. People basically these days don't make things. They uh, design them, they sell them, but they don't actually do much of the production, at least in this country. And the same is true in economics. Uh, we've seen, I think, increasing specialization. That is, the, the value chain in economics has been sliced up, and different people do different bits of that chain. And I want to argue against that. And I want to argue against it partly because it was, in fact, one of the objectives of the original research program that we in fact tried, I don't think always succeeded, but we were trying to look at the process as a whole. That is to look at the theoretical formulation, at the empirical specification, the data being used to examine the questions, the econometric estimation, and the application to policy. Now, to discuss all of that chain would really take me much more than the time that is left. So I'm going to concentrate on just one bit of it to bring out why I think it is important to have this sort of vertically integrated approach. And that's to look at the data part of the story, the inputs to the empirical investigation, what Jim kindly said was us keeping our feet on the ground. And of course, growth, one of the two subjects of the panel, is a very good example. And it seems to me that it's a matter of concern to us how we actually set about measuring that and how we relate it to the underlying national accounts, national income, which are the basis for talking about how fast we're growing. Now, national accounts, how we measure national income, is, I think, one of the, probably one of the most outstanding achievements of social science in the last century. And the reason for its success, I think, was that when it started, when it was being developed, particularly after the war, 
It involved statisticians and economists working together to construct this new way of thinking about the numbers in the economy. And it wasn't just economists, it was some of the leading economists of their generation, people like Richard Stone, James Mead, John Hicks, Paul Samuelson and Simon Kuznets. They were all involved and they were involved because they were economists working in the mainstream of economics, but they were interested in how to translate these concepts into numerical measurement. Now, this isn't true today. I, the national accounts are produced by essentially a specialist group of people working typically in statistical institutes and doesn't involve mainstream economists. In fact, I think the typical economist today knows little or nothing about where the numbers come from. We're watching anxiously, no doubt Nick McPherson more than some of us, what's going to happen to the next GDP figures, whether they're flatlining or growing. But what exactly are we watching? It isn't like watching rainfall or something. Rainfall is rather substantial. We can tell whether it's raining or not. But G GDP, national income, is a statistical construction quite a long way removed from reality. And it's a construction which actually needs, obviously, to move with the times. There was a time when we were largely engaged in manufacturing when actually we could see, on the one hand, we could see the cars coming out of the factory, we could see the people spending the money on the cars, and we could see the incomes going to people producing it. We could look at it in different ways and get a handle on what was going on. But today, with many much more sort of complex parts of national income, particularly with many services, two of those indicators are simply not available to us. So when we talk about whether the economy is growing, what we're actually observing in the case, say, of, to take the example that Nick Ferson took, of the financial services, we're observing the incomes, and the incomes are getting a lot of attention, but of course we don't observe anything, in most cases, tangibly in terms of the output that's coming out of that sector, nor do we necessarily know how much people are paying for it. We have to resort to statistical conventions. And these statistical conventions are quite potentially quite far removed from what's actually happening. For example, I was very struck when looking at, and I was working on the health services, I was wanting to draw a comparison between what was happening there in terms of uh, output and productivity. But although the health output has certainly grown in this country, the output of the financial services sector has grown by twice as much in the period from 2000 to 2008. And that's somehow slightly hard. Maybe I'm just not exposed sufficiently to what's going on in the financial services sector, but it's hard to imagine we're getting as it were, a, a growth rate in that sector, which is twice the growth rate of what's happened in a very rapidly expanding health service. Now, it wouldn't, of course, matter if all countries were actually making the same sort of convention to measure it. But, of course, much of our concern about growth is by comparing our performance with other countries. We're looking at other countries to see how fast they've grown and asking whether we can catch them up, why, whether Europe can catch up with the United States. But, of course, it, the size then of your financial services sector or other sectors you can't measure very well may then change the relative growth rates of countries like this one with a very large financial services sector relative to others like Germany that are much more engaged in producing the things you can actually see. 
The same also applies, of course, I mentioned the health service, to the government sector. And uh, when I was asked by uh, the Treasury to look at this a few years ago, one of the things that we discovered then was that because European countries, and particularly this one, had decided to try and actually measure what was coming out of the public sector in services like health and education and uh, other services of that kind where you could identify an output, we discovered that because the UK had switched to trying to do this, whereas, for example, the United States had simply carried on not trying to measure the output, but simply assuming whatever you spent on the service produced an output. They assumed the output equals input, and that's easier then to measure. And it turned out that by the fact the United States did this and we didn't, that that difference in itself accounted for half of the difference in the annual growth rate between the UK and the United States. So if you want to improve your growth performance, you have to think about the independence of statistical offices <laughs> in a different light. <laughs> And the same concerns apply to the equity part of the story. I mean, for example, I've been reading recently the uh, very impressive background papers to the Murley's Review, the Review of Taxation, which Jim shared, which is a very, contains some very interesting papers, including my number of people here. But again, I, in my spirit of vertical integration, I was trying to ask myself the questions the analysis is there, but where do the numbers that they're using come from? And Nick referred in his introductory comments to the fact that it was the availability of data from household surveys and other sources that was one of the motivations for embarking on this research program. And it's therefore, I think, the kind of question we were very keen to ask then, and I'm still keen to ask. And in that case, if you do ask that question, then some issues arise, which, again, I think tend to be forgotten and neglected. For example, much of the analysis of those papers is based on the Family Resources Survey, successor to the survey we began using back in the 1970s. And I asked myself the question, just looking at that, how are they getting on now in terms of the response to that survey? Because we were worried in the 1970s that about 70% only of households actually completed. I remember your father was taking part in it <laughs> at the time, so that added one to the response rate. <laughs> but 70% uh, at that time was, we felt, just about acceptable, uh, but nonetheless clearly had to be treated in terms of the analysis to allow for the fact that the other 30% might well be rather different. The response rate now to the Family Resources Survey, for a whole variety of reasons, including, for example, the fact people don't have landlines and can't be contacted, and other reasons, I think probably re resistance to surveys, has now fallen to 58%. In London, the response rate is 49%. So it means that the analysis that one's conducting is an analysis of a population which is about half to 60% of the potential. And so a critic of the analysis could certainly ask, well, you found this for these people, but what about the other half? And I think this is an area which increasingly is going to be of, of concern, and it's a question one has to ask when one looks at the kind of tools that people are then using to analyze tax and benefit policy. So to summarize on vertical integration, I'm not arguing that economists should try and do everything. I'm not saying people should be experts in every part of the process. What I do think is important is that there should be an appreciation 
of what happens at the other stages of the process. It's fine for people to specialise, but they should know what goes on, what lies behind the numbers that they're using and talking about. It's important there should be a clear line of sight from, looked at the other way around, from the construction of the data to the use that's going to be made of them in the Treasury or other policy-making bodies. Secondly, and uh, more briefly, uh, horizontal integration. We had the ambition in this program of adopting a broad approach to extend horizontally, particularly to be open to other disciplines. And I'm very glad to see that uh, Stickard, of which the last two words are related disciplines, it's economics and related disciplines, continues to take that very seriously. And I'm sure I knew it was very important to the founder of Stickard, Michio Morishima, that he attached great importance to the idea that this should be a centre that was not just a creature of the economics department, but was engaged with other subjects. And I think in some respects economics has, is indeed moving well in that direction. I think the rapid growth of interests in political economy is clearly a good example. In fact, we've been learning a lot about experimental work from other disciplines like social psychology. The fact that we're building bridges with neuroscience. All of these things seem to me very welcome opening, reduction of the barriers, extending the horizontal reach. But there are, I think, two things that worry me. This is what I want to end on. The first is that there's been a weakening of the links with one of the disciplines with which economics was historically associated, which is moral philosophy. And that's really, I'm referring to the virtual disappearance of welfare economics from our curriculum and from much of our research. You don't now find articles in leading journals about the foundations of the ethical judgments that we're making. Yet, if we're talking about equity and growth, on the title of the panel, then as Kenneth Arrow and Tipor Skutowski said in their introduction many years ago to the readings in welfare economics, economists want to know exactly what they are after, what is the meaning, the limitation, and the importance of economic efficiency and economic progress. The second aspect that concerns me is that within economics itself, the horizontal links are being lost. That is, we need to build bridges not just with other disciplines, but within our subject ourselves itself. This is, I think, quite well rep uh, represented, demonstrated, by our system of seminars. Forty years ago, when I was at the University of Essex, we had a single departmental seminar once a week, which most people came to most of the week. I think that's now pretty rare. I don't think many departments have a departmental seminar. They have separate seminars in labor economics, public economics, trade, macroeconomics, microeconomics, health economics, and so on. And people call themselves labor economists, public finance economists, trade economists, whatever. And I think this compartmentalization matters. I think it makes it much more difficult to draw the links between the different parts of the subject. And I'd like just to give one example of this, 
which relates to the economic crisis that's already been evoked in two of the other contributions. One of the possible explanations in this country of the growth of the financial services sector and therefore our exposure to the risks of the financial crisis is, I think, the link, or the link that's not made, but is, I think, there, between economic policy and social policy. And in particular, the changes that were made two decades or more ago in our policy towards pensions. The scaling back of state pensions by taking away the link between pensions and earnings so that they fell as a proportion of average earnings, the watering down of the state earnings-related pension system, despite the best efforts of John Hills and others, it's been scaled back below the ambitions of the earlier scheme that was introduced in the 1970s. And the introduction of personal pensions, allowing people to opt out and take out their own private funded schemes. All of these, together with the retreat of employers from final salary schemes, has undoubtedly stimulated the demand for financial services and has let many people, many people are in fact dependent on those services to provide for their old age. They had very little in the way of alternative. It also caused people to seek alternative investments, of which one of the most popular was buying houses to rent. And the buy-to-let contribution to the housing bubble which preceded the crisis was clearly not the only factor at work, but it was a contributory, a significant contributory element to the rise, the rapid rise in house prices. And this is an example of a link that one has to make. You don't get that from just going, as it were, uh, to one of the different seminars I listed. You have to make the connections between these different branches of economics. So I'm not saying economists should become polymaths. I think there's little hope for that. Uh, there are a few exceptions, but very few. But I think they need to be able to appreciate what's going on in other branches of the subject. And the use of evidence for policy requires an overall perspective. Now, those of you who know the history of this research program might well say at this point, you haven't set a very good example. Because as this program came to an end, we went off and established the Development Economics Research Group, the Financial Markets Group, the Welfare State Program. We compartmentalized. But I think, as, as many parents say to their children, do as I say, not as I do. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, well, we have a, a very a short time for some questions. Um, there's going to be roving mics. Uh, we have a large panel, so I'm not quite sure how I'm going to uh, mediate the answers, but I'm not going to be able to give a chance for all of the panelists to answer every question. So perhaps if you do want to ask a question, you might choose, if you wish, to direct it to a particular panel panelist. Um, and I ask you to, first of all, say who you are before you ask the question, and second, to keep it brief. So, who do, whose hand do I see? Um, there's, there's one upstairs there, so there's a, there, there are mics upstairs and there. Okay. Thank you. Um, oh, okay. Um, Professor Diamond, uh, you talked about how um, important it was to know 
how hard and when to tackle inflation, I think. Um, you mentioned it. When do you see the base rate in uh, the UK and America rising? <laughs> That's a very specific question. Peter, do you have an answer? I would like to pass that to Mervyn. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly, he's not answering. Okay. Um, good question. Um, okay. Down, down here, Margaret. <laughs> Okay, Margaret Bray from the LSE Economics Department. This is picking up on what Tony said, but maybe more widely. Uh, and obviously one of the scandals of acad academic economics has been the divorce between macro and finance, but you've pushed it wider. And the question is, how far is that a result of the incentives within the academic economics profession and what should we do about those incentives in order to generate a next generation of economists who can address those issues? Tony, do you want to come, on, come back on that? No, I, I think you're absolutely right that it's, uh, the incentives are all mitigating against people uh, diversifying. Um, I suppose, in a way, I mean, it, it, the, it, it then pushes the question back to those making the choices who are on the tenure committees and the selection committees. Uh, so it requires, I think, a shift of opinion by the more established members of the profession to do that. And uh, I don't think that is in itself impossible to think that. And it's, uh, I think the view I'm expressing is, as I I've forgotten who, no, who it was, said that they were aging and therefore their views were changing. But I think that uh, it may be I, I'm holding this view because I'm older, and if that's the case, there is some natural dynamic in the profession that the older people might be more receptive to it. But I do agree. I think that uh, it, it's also um, a reflection of the uh, simply more constrained nature of academic life. And I think that Nick referred to the, the importance of the universities, but I think to go beyond simply the question of, uh, of appointments and tenure, the kind of freedom that we enjoyed in the 1970s to simply choose our areas of research and basically, I mean, to be honest, we put in a research proposal more or less saying here are some data, here are some interesting areas, we would like to try and work on this. And I think that's the kind of freedom which is, I'm afraid, restricting people not just in the point of terms of their individual career appointments, but also when they're established as well in terms of getting research money and other forms. So I'm afraid it's part of a reflection of a more general trend. So in my experience, economists are very good to talk about incentives, except when they apply to themselves. So does anyone else want to, uh, to come in on that? I think we want to split out the two parts. The lack of interest in finance by finance people, financial engineers in macro, and the history of the lack of interest of macro economists in finance. Uh, obviously, working in finance is very lucrative and they are economists except most of them are physicists and applied mathematicians. Um, the, my sense with, without undercutting the fact that life was a lot easier in the earlier days the, um, and the compartmentalization in part is this incredible growth in the size of the profession, the volume of output, and, and things like that. Uh, but 
what drives people to a large extent is seeing a path to doing good work. Obviously, tenure is a piece of that, but a few people on this panel have gone on working after they had tenure. Uh, and those, of course, are the kind of people you want to give tenure to. And what I think I'm an eternal optimist will come out of the financial crisis is a realization by the macro community that there is good opportunity if you find a way of building finance into macro models and doing good work and getting advances for it. So the, I think there's a, a real difference and when we think of incentives, I think we shouldn't lose sight of the main incentive, uh, what Paul Samuelson has described as the, the coin we seek is the applause of our colleagues. And when the world changes, uh, the way to get those applause changes. Anyone else on the topic? Yeah. Um, I think some examples from the um, great economists of um, the time when um, we were young teachers really illustrates how productive the kind of approach that Tony's describing could be. I mean, let me just take four from the UK and four from the US. If you look at James Mead, John Hicks, um, Dick Stone and, and Nicky Caldor, a lot of what they did was putting pieces together. I mean, they, they worked quite hard on particular parts, but they also worked on the integration. If you look at Bob Solo, Paul Samuelson, Jim Tobin, Franco Modigliani, I think you come to the same, um, you, get a, you get a similar perspective that a lot of the value in what they did came from their ability to put the different pieces together. And I suspect you do see much less of that in, uh, in modern economics. And it would be nice to think that uh, it, it's not impossible. And I think that's something which we um, older members of the economics profession should try to ask. And I think we should test it out and push it and not just uh, accept it. But the second area where these things have to come together, and I look to my close friend and former colleague on my left, the, the other Nick, on, on the panel. The other place where you have to put all those bits together are in the Treasury or in the Treasuries, the uh, finance departments, because those are the bits where you do look across and have to look across the waterfront. So it would be interesting if, um, as well as us ourselves in the university looking at the supply side of this kind of ability to put things together, we work closely together with the demand side, which is in Ministries of Finance, where they have to. Uh, inevitably because of the nature of their uh, challenge and the decisions they have to take and advise on, they have to put it together as well. Yep. A quick thought. Uh, it, it seemed to me looking back on my life that it, it, it makes quite a difference if you have to teach everything, uh, which probably people don't much know. But when starting people off in uh, Cambridge College, in the old, old days, you jolly well had to think your way through the whole of economics, <laughs> literally on an elementary level. So I, I think, don't think it's only about incentives. I, I think that there, there are other things that make you spread out and take an interest in other things. I think transparency requires me to reveal that my tutor was uh, Jim Murley's. And the <laughs> <laughs> 
And I went to him when I was just switching from mathematics to economics after three years doing mathematics and said, what do I read during this summer? And he told me to read um, Joseph Schumpeter, Capitalism, Socialism and, and uh, Democracy, and uh, Paul Samuelson's textbook. And I think actually that was... <laughs> Uh, I found it to be very good advice, whether empirically that's good advice or not, but I found it to be very good advice. So, <laughs> thank you, Jim. And this was somebody who, at that point, when we were having that discussion, was working on the very mathematical theory of optimum income taxation, which he got the Nobel Prize. So he was telling me to do something differently, uh, or at least build the foundations uh, in a way which was less technical than the mathematical background I'd come from. Right, uh, next question. Down here, can we get a, get a mic? Down? Thank you. Thank you. Andrew Kahn, previously a civil servant, now sort of trying to swim in, in the world of financial services. Can I ask on the demand side, I noticed that in Germany, most public servants who are operating, civil servants who are operating in economic departments have either a law degree or an economics degree. Many of them are economists. It's true that quite a lot of ministers are too. We have a government economic service uh, operating now, much better than when I started as a public service a servant, but we don't have many economists actually being uh, 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 civil servants. And I'd really put a question to, to Nick McPherson. Um, should we have more economists, professionally trained economists, actually trying to take the public policy decisions uh, that you've been talking about or should we uh, rely, it's, the, the panel has almost talked as though the academic economists will do the work, the analysis, and pass it over to a bunch of uh, civil servants and ministers who aren't economists and can't make the right judgments. So would we have better policy if we had more economists as ministers and as civil servants? Well, Nick, would you like to respond? Was, uh, was, was a very good question. Uh, I thought you meant yes. <laughs> I think, um, Economists can play a really uh, constructive role. I don't, I mean, the Treasury stopped making a distinction in senior levels between economists and non-economists some time ago, not least because actually if you look at the senior echelons of the Treasury, most people in the top jobs um, are, you know, long-standing members of the government economic service. I mean, it, there was a sort of point I remember when I was told that once you did a certain number of jobs which weren't pure economist jobs, you would get expelled from 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 the GES, but somehow they never managed to put this uh, into into effect in my own case. And um, so I think uh, the Treasury, and I hope Nick would back this up. You know, it has a reasonable economic literacy in its senior levels. Um, I think there may be more we can do in wider microeconomic departments and uh, areas like work and pensions and your own uh, sister department, uh, the Department for Business. And I mean, I think uh, Tony's points about pensions are, 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 are really interesting in that respect. My, one of my first jobs was working on providing economic advice on pensions and if ever you want to understand the effect of incentives you should go back to the special bribe you got to take out a personal pension in the late 1980s. The, the more I think interesting part of your question relates to politicians and um, uh, 
I can't, uh, apart from the very excellent outgoing um, Secretary of State for Children's uh, Schools and Families, uh, who I think had quite an advanced economic training, and he certainly showed it in his approach to policy development when acting as an advisor at the Treasury, but latterly as a minister. Um, not a huge number of uh, professional economists come to mind. There's a rather good Liberal Democrat uh, uh, minister, I think, actually, at Work and Pensions, who may actually help uh, help move 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 the game up. I think he came from the University of Bath, but um, I can remember reading some of his product in the old days. Um, I think the Prime Minister studied... Uh, 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 PPE, but having studied that myself, I don't think that's necessarily uh, <laughs> a sufficient grounding to uh, call yourself an economist, and I'm quite certain that the Bank of England would not uh, accept uh, people who call themselves economists on that basis. So I, um, I'm a bit of an advocate for economics, um, uh, and um, I, I think we should... You know, maybe this should inform how we cast our votes at elections. <laughs> okay. Well, um, it had some impact in Scotland. <laughs> true, true, good point. Uh, question, question up, up there. Um. Did you vote? Thank you. Yes, I think economists can do wonders, and they can uh, probably run the government very well. Uh, only if they can uh, learn to avoid the growth of isms. Uh, after all, I think the, uh, credit, the, credit, uh, the, uh, the credit crunch, maybe we have nothing to learn, but we have to learn, we have to know, learn this at the market fundamental causes, the isms, the development of easy, uh, what you call easy development of isms, easy development of dominant, dominant thinking. Um, tribalization of economists. If you can avoid that, if you can keep the dissent and the eccentrics um, um, life uh, amongst you, then I think you, do, you will do better. So how do you, um, what you call avoid this tribalization of economists, and how do you keep the dissent and the, and the eccentricism somewhat alive and well uh, in economics? Thank you. Okay, so the question of how to avoid fads, I take that to be. Anyone want to, I mean, I guess in the, crisis, in the context of the crisis, I guess people... Uh, let me try. I, I think the insistence that economists have tried to bring to the story on evidence-based policy um, it is a if it's accepted is a very powerful antidote so the argument is here's a policy that's of interest or a policy that's being advocated or here's a range of policies that we're studying let's look at the evidence as we have it on what the effects of those policies might be on uh, growth and output, revenue and expenditure, and the well-being of households. And I think that discipline of evidence-based policy, along the kind of structure which motivated um, the uh, tidy program, is a good way to deal with people who say this is the right policy because it's the right policy, uh, which is what I take it you mean by an ism. Now, there are times in public life where it's very difficult to stick with the evidence-based approach to policy. And we, inside government, um, had a description of the idea of policy-based evidence, 
which was evidence that was put together to support a policy that had been already uh, decided. And I think it's the quality of the work and the speed of the work on evidence-based policy that's the main antidote. Um, government is in real time. If you ask an academic what they think about the subject, they'll say, well, actually it's really about this and um, it'll take me a little while to do my research and I'll let you know in a year or two uh, what the outcome of this evidence-based policy analysis uh, really is. In government, you have to, um, I remember Alan Budd, um, one of my predecessors, head of the government economic service, he used to phrase it this way. He said that um, what you have to be get good at is answering the question, given what we now think we know, uh, what would you now suggest that we do? And the answer by either tomorrow or the end of the week. <laughs> and it's that kind of discipline we have to blend, as it were, the deeper analyses that sometimes we have time for with uh, the more immediate uh, issues as they arise. And I, th I think I can reveal after now quite a long time having left the Treasury, when I was there as head of the Government Economic Service, we looked at the different departments and asked the economists in those, in those departments are the decisions and recommendations in your departments based on analysis of evidence? And uh, I won't name the department that came bottom. <laughs> Maybe over a beer later on this evening. Um, but the department that came top was strikingly what the department Nick just mentioned, Department of Work and Pensions, where the tradition of analysis based on evidence has, I think, been quite strong for quite a long period of time. And the more we use that kind of example, I think, the more we can avoid the problem that you describe. Well, alas, I have to draw this now to a close. Um, beforehand, I, was, I described this event and tomorrow's as my graduate reading list come to life. And uh, I think it lived up to that billing. I've had the opportunity to, to, to see people together on the stage uh, discussing these issues that I've certainly never had the opportunity before. And, uh, so I'd like to thank all of the panelists for their contributions and uh, in advance to those who are also participating uh, in our seminar tomorrow. And to thank all of you for, for coming and uh, I hope like me you've had an enjoyable time. Thank you.